I mean, Marty's family, they're geeks, they're dweebs, which I love that you brought the word dweeb back. That's awesome. <laughs> 80s, dude. You're listening to the Story Geeks Podcast, produced by the Reclamation Society. In the past couple months, we've seen story after story of sexual assault and bullying in Hollywood, um, particularly amongst, amongst men of power. So men of power are the ones that are sexually assaulting and bullying folks. And here's a film in the 1980s wherein the villain is a bully who sexually assaults and threatens people, and that's Biff Tannen, obviously. Um, but there's also this sense that George McFly is sort of a, I, I don't know of a better word, George McFly is sort of a weenie in, in many <laughs> cases, right? Um, and in fact, a core part of this story is seeing George change. Um, there's a lot of character development in George. So are those two messages at conflict with one another, that being what bullies look like and what victims look like? Are those two things at odds uh, with one another? And also, what can we learn about this topic, especially since it's so relevant to us right now, from Back to the Future as a film? What do you think, Josh? I think actually the the victim, yeah, George is a victim mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, but Lorraine is more yes. of the standard victim that we're more accustomed to, right? Like she's not, she's not the weenie. Absolutely. She just is a regular person who just happens to be uh, uh, harassed, really. Like not even like the um, sexual harassment that does come later on in the film, but like the constant like asking out, like the constant trying to be in her face and, yep. and tell people that she's with him and stuff. Um, that really makes George look like a good guy even though he might not even be a good, great guy. I mean, he's like a peeping Tom. <laughs> <laughs> but it makes Marty look like the hero, really, because he's teaching his dad how to be a stand-up guy. And we see Marty being that stand-up guy as far as, you know, yeah, it's his mom or whatever, but, like, <laughs> you want to protect your mom. But, like, he kind of, you know, steps up to Biff, too, at a time when he sees his mom yeah, being harassed. Yeah, I'm actually really glad you brought that up because – Lorraine has the traditional, like what we're seeing in Hollywood right now, right. right? Like she's the one that's like sexually assaulted and harassed throughout the film. And George is the one who's bullied. So obviously like um, there's a, some slight differences in how those occur, but they're very relevant in both cases. So I'm really glad you brought yeah. that up. Yeah. yeah. What about you? Well, this, um, this sort of speaks to what I was saying a little bit earlier too, about Marty affecting the characters around him. Yeah. Because, yes, Lorraine is the sexual assault victim and George is the bullying victim. Yeah. But like you said, George is a bit of a weenie, mm-hmm. so he sort of makes himself bullyable. And I feel like Lorraine, especially when when Marty first encounters her in the 50s after getting hit by the car, she's pretty aggressive. Like, she, right. she's like, <laughs> I don't want to call her a hussy, but she's, you know, she's... Yeah. Well, they even make a joke of that in the film because she says later, she says in 1985, she says, it is so inappropriate for a girl to ask a guy out. Yeah, yeah. And then in the past, you see her just like right. <laughs> totally yeah. taking control of all the So she's she's aggressive. Not that that at all in any way means it's okay to sexually assault somebody. It never is. It doesn't matter. But um, I think it shows an area that all of these characters need to grow in a little bit over the course of the movie. And they do. She becomes more level-headed. She kind of calms down. George becomes braver. He gets more courage. He's not such a weenie. 
one of the few flaws. Yeah. I put flaws in quotes because I don't really necessarily. Air quotes. Yeah, there's air quotes but, for those of you on yeah, the podcast yeah. and the audio. Um, <laughs> is I feel when you look at the bullying thing and you look at Biff as a bully. Yeah. I wish that Biff's change was represented a little bit better. Mm. Because what is the ultimate change for Biff? He basically just switches places with George, right? He becomes the guy washing, wax, waxing the car and right. and he becomes the loser. Yes. So it's like that's a good little revenge tale, like the bully becomes the loser, right. you know. But I would rather see him grow and understand why bullying is wrong and get redeemed from it and grow up a little bit and mature. Yeah. And not that he didn't do that, but right. we don't see it. Well, and we want him to we're we want him to end up where he ends up, but it's not redeemed. It's pushed down. Yeah, to it's his, revenge. It's revenge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. So, and all the other characters grow. They all get some That's movement true. forward, and Biff never does. One of the things I love, and I didn't have a question about this at all, but as you guys are talking, I'm thinking to myself, like, and as one of the, I was, I was asking one of the other questions too, I was thinking about this, I'm like, yeah, every single character develops. In some way. In some way. Yeah, totally. They all develop in some way. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I have to refer to my notes because I have a, I thought a couple of things because I think one of the things that um, can be dangerous, well, I'll get to that one in a second. I'll get to the one that can be dangerous, but the portrayal of George as a weenie, I think, can teach us two things. The first is it is really important for us to encourage victims of bullying, um, to come alongside victims of bullying with support, and also to stand up for them. Um, all three of those things, I think, are really important um, for us to do that with, with people who are victims of bullying. Uh, and I'm, I'm way too familiar with bullying. Like I, I didn't even anticipate being as familiar with bullying as I am, but it's just something that has occurred in my life in the past. So it's like, it's, it's really weird that um, I've had to go through that, but it is what it is. Uh, number two, I also think it's really important to help teach victims how to stand up for themselves because we see this, because we see George do this. There's this moment in the film where uh, he finally asks Lorraine to dance and he's dancing with Lorraine after he's already stood up for himself. He's now dancing with Lorraine and then that redheaded kid, who's always a punk in 80s movies, by the way. Seriously, <laughs> every, I hate that guy. 80s movies, I know. <laughs> he's like typecast, um, but he butts in, right? And there's this moment where we're thinking like, nope, George is just gonna go right back to being George. And he doesn't, he actually overcomes it. So, right. so he's taught how not to be a victim. He's taught that he can overcome this situation on his own, as opposed to, I, I, cause I don't, one of the things I don't think we want to do is while we do want to stand up to, um, to bullies and we want to help victims stand up to bullies. We also don't want to keep them in the victim stage. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Where they just keep repeating that stage over and over again. And as a, just really quick, as I always talk about legacy as somebody yeah. that loves legacy and storytelling. I love that moment in the movie because <clears throat> the occurrence that brings Marty back from the brink of literally fading away is his dad stepping up and being braver. Yes. You know, and so not, and not that. from a reactionary standpoint in terms of like before when he punches Biff for the first time, it's like, it's self-defense. Like, what else is he going to do? Yeah, yeah it's like, like, he has it's like to. he's either doing that or like, you know, so it's, it's not as impactful of a choice. Yeah. Whereas that second choice is the development of the character. Yeah. yeah. And um, so it's almost like the emphasis is more on him stepping up and being brave exactly. that saves Marty than it is necessarily the two of them getting together. That's exactly right. 
Um, my one warning, and this would be the wrong message, I think, to take from the film, and I don't think the film is trying to tell us this, but I, I don't think this is, at all, as, is true at all, but we would not want to assume that bullying is somehow ex- an acceptable form of toughening George up. In fact, I would I would argue that the film shows that he's never going to get tough if he stays in the victim bullied mode. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I don't think we can say that. I don't think we can. I don't think we can say that George deserves the treatment that he's getting because he's a weenie. We we right. should not come to that conclusion. Right. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So in re- in regards to Biff, uh, which he does have actually like bodily harm and verbal abuse. Um, it isn't quite as nuanced as bullying in real life. I don't believe. No. no, yeah, it's very much like everyone in the cafeteria is staring at him when he calls George a name. Like, but but at the same time, I think that high school is a little bit like that in the sense that you don't mess with the bully, mm-hmm. so everybody kind of just like allows them to do whatever. Right. And they just all look on and be like, oh, "Sorry, man." Like, right? You know, but uh, but like, uh, I've I've witnessed that before, like in in schools and stuff. Of like, the cool kid is kind of the bully because nobody wants to tell him that he's not cool, <laughs> right? So, I, I get it, but yeah, it is a little bit more mm, overly emphasized, yes, than what it probably should be. Yeah, and I and I have seen bullying in the workplace on a couple of different occasions that I can think of um, recently and so this is adult bullying so you're right about high school is a kind of a different dynamic yeah, yeah. everything's sort of more extreme you know right. but in the in the adult bullying situations the tactics are so subtle so first of all they're adept at using their leverage as a threat to other people so we're seeing that in all these sexual assault cases that we're seeing in Hollywood right the only reason that not the only reason, but one of the main reasons that people are getting away with this is because those people are perceived to have enough power yes. to prohibit other people from achieving what they want to achieve in their lives. Um, and they are adept at using that leverage as this subtle threat. They don't even have to say it. They don't have, yeah. to, they don't have to verbalize like, well, if you don't let me sexually assault you, then obviously I'll ruin your career. They just have to at least like even hint at it. Like it's, it's, it's something that's really, really, really brutal um, when you really get into it. The other thing that I would say, and I actually did some research about this as well when I was facing a bullying situation at work. Um, a lot of times bullies will use friendship and this apologetic cycle to make the victims think that it's all over. So victims tend to have this like PTSD where they're going through the scenario and they're thinking like, oh my gosh, that was so terrible. I don't know how I'm going to get over this. But then the bully comes back alongside them, usually doesn't apologize, but treats them so well that the victim goes, okay, that was an isolated incident. It's not going to happen again. Right. Then it does happen again. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's this constant cycle that's going through. In fact, if you go to, to look at some of the workplace bullying, um, materials on how that happens that's one of the big things that they say happens in workplace bullying Hmm. which is just really interesting but i think it also is not just workplace i think that it happens in real life like the bullies in the lives do those those same things and get those same cycles so i think the the big lesson here is that for those of you who are out there and who you like even if you feel like you may be being bullied like definitely find some other people around you for support to see if that's true or not um and then 
because I don't know that like the, some of the people that I were I was working with who were definitely being bullied for sure. I don't even know that they would have ever called it that. And when you don't name it, and when you don't say like, "Hey, that's bullying," then that's when you can kind of know that you're already the victim because yeah. you're not even letting yourself get there. And that I don't think you need to. I don't think we should. And I, this is my last thing is like. Um, and this points to what you said, Daryl. I do think that what the film teaches us is that we should stand up to bullies. I think that that's appropriate. I think that that's not a message we hear as much anymore. Like we don't hear it. Cause I think that there's an assumption that that means that there's violence associated with it. Cause like back in the day you'd see like the playground fight and it's like, right. well, you stand up to the bully and then right. eventually it ends up punching them and it's a battle. Right. And, but I don't think that that necessarily, especially as we talk to adults, I don't think violence is standing up. I think you have to have boundaries and you have to be able to say like, no, I'm not doing that. And I think that one of the solutions that you need to take on is that usually bullies are allowed to bully because they do it in isolation. They're a person that generally has some sort of power and they're, they're bullying other people in an isolated incident, which is very different from the school cafeteria example. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Like, that's a different type scenario. That's a machismo scenario. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But in, in, in real life, a lot of times it's an isolated situation and one of the ways to to take power away from the bully is to expose that isolated behavior in a more public setting which is what we're seeing now with the sexual assault cases right like the more the more volume and the more people the more that becomes a real thing that we can all understand as society the last thing i would say is just to back up your point daryl is that bullies need help they are villains they should especially in this case of these sexual assault cases in Hollywood, they should face consequences for that, no question. But some of the anti-bullying organizations that I was talking to um, when I was doing Star Wars Rivals and I was trying to talk to them about whether or not they would promote it for us and stuff, um, they, they talked about the fact that, especially when it's kids, the kids had been bullied themselves and they became bullies because they'd been bullied. So yeah. especially with kids, we have to remember that these are other human beings so they should face consequences, but there should be some sort of redemption that we can hope yeah. for them. Even if that redemption is like for a Harvey Weinstein, which is basically like, dude needs to be in prison for the rest of his life. But hopefully he can still, through prison, figure out that he, what he was doing was super wrong and have some semblance of feeling sorry about that, right? He's still going to stay in prison. We're not going to let him out. But like, that's got to be a part of it, I think, to a certain extent. So any... Any other final thoughts on the bullying issue? I've been droning on for way too long. <laughs> I mean, I think just the redemption thing is, I don't feel like, I feel like that should always be the goal in any source of conflict, like whatever it is, war, yeah. a fight, anything, because sure the fight itself can end and a person can stop being a bully, but unless there's some sort of growth, unless there's a change to the problem to begin with, mm -hmm. it's never gonna go away. And so the goal should always be some sort of greater understanding and deeper change rather than just stop bullying me. You know what I mean? Right. So Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I I, I have nothing left. <laughs> 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 yeah, You're good to go. All right, cool. We got a couple questions left. Uh, this play this film takes place in an idealistic nineteen eighty five, I would say. Um, you guys you guys can actually come back at me at that if you want to, but it seems pretty idealistic to me. And then the filmmaker's interpretation of 1955. So 
I would love to, to hear your thoughts about your take on each of these settings and how they seem accurate or inaccurate and w the why behind it. So what do you think, Josh? I think that the idealistic 1985 is false. Ah. I think the idealistic 1955 is true. The 85, I think, uh, is pretty realistic. There's trash on the streets. Uh, sure. they're, uh, they're trying to save monuments from being bulldozed. I feel like the 80s was very much all about bulldozing down places, building them all. You know, like yeah. that was definitely what was going on, especially like in a town center like that where like there were all these little shops all around you know, the area, mm -hmm. those shops would have been gone in 1980s. We're just now seeing that resurgence of kind of like the um, small town shopping area. We're definitely seeing that in the past decade. But the 1955, one of the things, um, they try. They, they do try. They uh, have the mayor who, you know, is African-American right. in 1985, and then he works in the soda shop. Yeah. Uh, in the 50s and they give him the little moment of like yeah right like a black guy could be mayor and he's like i could be mayor that conversation that scene probably would not exist for real and i would assume that being the only black guy that you see in town besides the band um he would be probably much more bullied than he is mm -hmm. he's way more cool than he yeah. ever should be you know yeah, yeah, uh yeah. and then you see like so much of like people like in the streets and uh, it just seems much more of like a happier place right which i guess like that's the movie wants you to assume that 1955 <laughs> was better than 1985 right uh to a certain extent but they should probably be a little bit more similar than they are yeah yeah that makes sense yeah what do you, what do you think yeah i mean i obviously i can't speak to 1955 because i wasn't there but <laughs> but i agree with you josh i think i remember seeing the movie and feeling then in 1985 like this feels like life this feels like what my life feels like yeah. until all the time travel stuff started happening but it just kind of it felt that way which i think is one of the reasons it resonates so much it doesn't feel that far off it feels like this fantastical super fun adventure that could happen to me interesting you know yeah yeah well, what do you think about 1955 I mean, I'd probably just everything Josh said, I I can't know for sure. It does seem a little too idealistic. It does seem like it would be more racist, <laughs> more <laughs> more aggressive in certain areas and stuff like yeah. that. They are they are showing like some of that, right? Cuz the the kids coming at the kids chasing Marty when they encounter the band after they sure. throw Marty in the trunk, right? And then and and they, and they they give a racial slur to the guy and like who are you calling? Yeah, you know, and then they kind of so there's there's like hints at that, but it doesn't seem. It seems like oh you darn bullies like it doesn't seem like yeah, yeah. this is like pervasive you know it seems like yeah. oh well just those kids are doing that. That that like initial shot into Hill Valley, you see like I always think of like the kid with like the springs on his shoes, you know, and he's just like hopping <laughs> through the park like no parent nothing it's just like yeah. just a kid hanging out in the park, um, kids playing hopscotch and stuff like everybody's like shopping it just seems like. It seems like uh, every shop owner is just like, hey, well, you know, like, how's it going? Well, and it, that city, even though it was still a small town, that city was far too big for, like, everybody to be like, hey, Johnny, what's going on? Like, <laughs> right, right. yeah, you need, you know, you're normal. Yeah. That wasn't happening. Right. Yeah. 
I thought it was really funny too. In the, even in the eighties, when Marty waves to the whole class of jazzercise people, and they yeah. like wave back, like, "Hey, what's up?" Um, the only thing I thought of with nineteen eighty-five that I think is somewhat idealized. Now, I don't know. If this is just I. I so nineteen the nineteen eighties seemed like the decade of progression in terms of what I've lived through. Does that make sense? Like when I say that, I say that like the two thousands actually were a lot of progression too. But what I mean by that is all the families were like, like, I don't know. This is, I think false, but it seemed like they were all full house families or like, or, you know, all the, all those sitcoms we saw in the eighties, a lot of the, like you saw, like, do you guys remember Owen Mills? Did you have Owen Mills in Colorado? No. Did you have Owen Mills? I don't know what that is. Owen Mills was a photography place every family got their their olin mills portraits Mm. taken right maybe so and then and there was like this this concept i think in the 80s that was you had all the yuppies and even even you see it in hollywood films like punks yeah but in hollywood films it's like it's very glorified like as if the 80s were this really time of like economic thriving like it looks like hill valley is economically thriving i mean you have some trash but i mean for the most part it's like a pretty nice place and he's like skateboarding around and there's no police after him he's he's grabbing on to i mean the guy gives him a dirty look the guy at the mountain dew hat gives him a dirty look but in the 1980s in if if you do a little bit of research i have like the fascination with um for some reason i have a fascination with gangs for whatever reason um and there was like this is when the 80s were when there was massive crack cocaine issues in los angeles yeah and there was bloods and crips just going at it in the streets because there was so much so much uh so many problems there yeah it was i mean especially like once you get into the later 80s it is the peak of um of gang warfare of yep. drugs of, de- of just delinquency in general exactly uh I see what you're going at there, but I think when you take the context of what Hill Valley is and what the average American experience is, yeah. I think that, you know, the uh, downtowns typically were a little bit trashier. It was trash in the streets. Sure. There were homeless people sleeping on benches, which we see. Sure. Um, but then, you know, you go to the suburbs of that, which is where Marty lives. Right. And it tends to be more materialistic. It tends to be more, uh, you see some stuff, you know, left over from the 70s. Yeah. Some furniture and stuff. But a lot of stuff is trying to get updated. Everybody's trying to buy the next latest and greatest thing so they can keep up with the neighbors. Yeah. We do see that in the film. And I feel like without going into, like, the political socio world that the 1980s was which was a a dumpster fire like (laughs) let's be honest it it was not great but that was never what i think the general american experience was right yeah no that's a good point i think that there is i guess one way to put it is that there was a big dichotomy right in the 80s between those who were experiencing issues and those who were thriving and then if if you were looking at 1955, it's more idealized because, I mean, I guess you could consider this more California, uh, you know, Hill Valley of uh, California. But, like, if you were to look at most places in the 50s, you would have had separate bathrooms. 
Right. Uh, you know, you would have had more segregation than what the film really acknowledges. Right. And that was American life. That wasn't just like what you saw on the news every evening. That was your normal everyday. Right. And you were seeing, you know, tensions building there across absolutely. the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. So, I think that's part of why the movie's so timeless, too, because I look back at my life and living in the 80s and my life doesn't seem dated mm. when I look back and live in, and think of experience in the 80s because things are dated when you have heavy references to fashion or pop culture or anything fad or trendy that's going on around that right. time. And this movie doesn't do that. It doesn't like it wasn't heavy on all that stuff that was going on then. It was just focusing on characters yeah, in the town. That's very true. Which I think is part of why it feels so true. All right, so question uh, number eight. I'll start with you, Josh, on this one, just because sure. Daryl asked it. Uh, why do you think Doc and Marty are so close? Okay, so <laughs> jumping in back into this. So Marty believes his family is a bunch of geeks, right? They're a bunch of dweebs. He is looking for, uh, you know, so, like like a friendship that, or even a fatherly kind of figure um, that's cooler. Doc isn't necessarily cool, but <laughs> Doc's got a bunch of stuff, and this is the 1980s when stuff was pretty cool. Um, he's got his guitar. He's got his amplifier. He's got all these other things. So I think, actually, Doc needs Marty more than Marty needs Doc. Ah. If you think about it, because Doc needs someone to help him with the experiments. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure i don't know you know the background of how these two met but i would assume that doc convinced marty to come over by saying hey i've got a place you can play guitar or whatever mm. which sounds totally <laughs> sketchy which says, yeah, i've got this van full of guitar i've man. got this van full of candy uh jump on in but i mean i would assume that doc approached marty with all this stuff and Marty was like, okay, cool. Yeah, I could definitely like come over and he was like, by the way, would you, you know, help out with some, uh, things just have this camcorder. If you'll just show up at this mall at midnight, no weird. <laughs> uh, but I yeah. think that, I think that Marty appreciates that doc let him in to kind of like play around, check out some stuff. And, uh, he makes Marty feel important because now he's got this kind of like, figure who just lets him play with all the cool toys hmm. and then doc feels like he's got a friendship with this younger boy mm -hmm. weird to say uh, <laughs> but he's got this friendship with this younger boy because he's got this guy who can come around and help assist him and kind of be you know the igor to his frankenstein um i think that their relationship really relies on the fact that like they both they don't need each other, but they both feel like they need each other ah. in that moment. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I don't know how long they've been friends, but yeah. it seems like for a while. Sure, sure. Yeah. And it is creepy to try and figure out how they yeah. became friends. Because yeah. <laughs> it's hopefully Doc's like a friend of a friend or something. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But um, the reason I thought of this question is because I see a through line in their relationship. Sorry, did you want to answer the question first no, before no, I no. Okay. Um because yes, I agree. I think they 
they provide something to each other that they don't otherwise have. You know, Doc doesn't have any family. He doesn't have anybody. At least we don't think he has any family in his life. He's not married. He doesn't have any kids. And so Marty sort of represents a connection that he doesn't have. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as Marty needing Doc, I feel like Marty, at least for the story, I feel like Marty needs Doc more than Doc needs Marty because in the beginning of the movie, you're right, Doc's, I mean, Marty's family, they're geeks, they're dweebs, which I love that you brought the word dweeb back. That's awesome. Um, (laughs) 80s, dude. We're podcasting with the I know, I know. It's gnarly. So, um, <laughs> rad, dude. Rad. That's such a rad, <laughs> such a rad word. So, I'm so lost now. Um, <laughs> so, sorry. Not only are they geeks and dweebs, but I think there's this sense that because of maybe being bullied his whole life, there's this sense that George McFly has kind of given up. He's resigned himself to life being the way it is. And that I'm just not that good at confrontation. And, you know, yeah. it's just. Everything is the way it is, and there's no reason to dream beyond that or to hope beyond that. And I think Marty hates being in that environment. Hmm. And Doc is the antithesis of that, right? Doc is an an inventor. He's a scientist. He's a dreamer. So I think Marty gets that sort of passion for life and that desire to go beyond your circumstances from Doc. Yeah. And And then I think in turn... I feel like Marty gives that to Doc in the 50s hmm. because Doc, is seem, he seems a bit like a shut-in. You know, he's doing everything in his house. He's not interacting a whole lot. And then when it comes to this idea that Marty is literally trying to save his life by writing him this letter. Yeah. And he won't look at it. He's so stuck in his ways. He doesn't want to know what's in the future. But by ultimately embracing it, Marty does save him. Yeah. So... Maybe I'm just reading into this way too much, but to me, it's their connection is really deep and important and integral to the whole story. Yeah, I can't add anything to either of those <laughs> answers. Like you put those two together, I think you're good to go. Um, but I will ask you guys this because you brought this up, Daryl, and it made me think of it. I actually had this as a question at one point in time. I took it out. But somebody travels back in time to now and they hand you a letter and it <laughs> says, Open this, it'll tell you about your future. Do you feel like Doc about it? Or are you like, oh, let me open this letter. I want to see exactly what's going on. Like, what do you think? I would definitely be... My wife would tell you that I should not open it. (laughs) And that she would hide it from me. Because she would know that I'm the person that would be like, yeah, that seems like important stuff. And then i rip it open and I'd have it. And then she'd be like, no. And then she'd burn it. Um, you know, that's, that's what my life is like, but yeah, I would definitely open it. I mean, Mm. I think that I would not see the harm in what would come eventually from it. I would see the, like, I need to know this now. Yeah. 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 What about you? Uh, I don't know. I, I hate uncertainty in life. Um, that's a point of anxiety for me and I really, really hate it. Yeah. But let's say I open the letter and it tells me when I'm going to die or it tells me about some terrible thing that's going to come. Which is what Marty thinks he's giving him, by the way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Then at first on the surface, that's like, oh, okay, now I know something. I can plan for it. There's, there's more certainty in this. Yeah. But I don't think it, 
it would actually benefit me in any way. I think it would just right. create this whole new set of anxieties and stuff like that. So it, it creates this question, would I rather have knowledge yeah. or hope? Mm. And if I really, really think about it, I'd probably just lean towards hope. Interesting. But can't you change your future now that you know your future? That's, that'd be the question well, too, right? Can you? I don't know. So, so I actually know some friends of mine. I won't, be, I won't use their names, but I know some friends of mine who actually literally face this decision because um, my, my friend, had, uh, her fam- in her family, they have uh, genetic disease. And you can get tested for it to see if it will show up in your life or not. And that basically is a letter. Right, like, are do I have it or do I not have it? Like, do, yeah. do I have the genes that that make me have this thing, or do I not have the genes? Am I safe? And um, and they chose to know. And I think what's interesting about it, uh, from like a third party's perspective, is just that like, on the one hand, you know how to take care of yourself. Right, like if you do have it, you know how to like deal with it. And like, I know how to get resources. I, I should be getting resources, and I should be making sure I understand this so I can deal with it well. But on the other hand, I, I do know that it it does. Ignorance can be bliss, right? Like, it, like yeah. the like not knowing that cannot create a weight on your shoulders. And I think that there's that weighing period of like, does it help me? Because like it'll help me and it'll help future me. Or does it just weigh on present me and and yeah. take joy from me? You know, like steal joy from me. So I don't know. I think those those decisions are pretty heavy. And obviously, like in this film, like it's just this. It's 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 just a fun thing, right? And we're all happy that he opened the letter at the end of the film, right? Because we all know, like, oh yeah, cool, yeah. He like he finally figured it out. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So so it can get kind of intense, I guess. Last question, guys. Uh, this is an, a pretty amazing cast of characters right yeah. i mean I, don't, I think that every single character has something to add here I, I don't know of any characters that i'm just really like disappointed to even show up um but my question is amazing characters amazing film fantastic writing is this film possible could you possibly make this film now why or why not and if so what would you have to change to get it to be made? I mean, I think for, I mean, for many reasons, you cannot make this film now. Um, just because there's so much about this movie that was just like, you know, lightning in a bottle. Yeah. And you just can't recreate that. Right. Um, you could tell a story like this now, but it would be vastly different. Um, and I think about that maybe not so much from this perspective of the characters like mm-hmm. things are different now there's more light being shed on bullying and sexual harassment and things like that so maybe you can't safely tell such a lighthearted story that includes those elements right now sure but i think the bigger thing and this might stray from your question so i'm sorry about that but the bigger thing is i feel like it would be hard to tell this story uh-huh. in the age of the internet mm. because there's so much like naivety naivete naivety or naivete i don't know whichever one sounds yeah <laughs> and um vigilante, then don't do that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. do that yeah and then just like innocence and just not knowing so much about what's going on 
in the entire world and with technology and stuff like that. Like when, when Marty sees the DeLorean for the first time and just this whole idea of a time machine, it just, his mind is completely blown. And if there exists an internet where you can waste your hours away looking up stuff and reading about that to begin with, maybe it's not quite as big a deal when you see it for the first time. So it may not be that big a deal, but that's the first thing that comes to my mind is information is so readily available right now and the Mm -hmm. world has gotten smaller that a story like this with so much wonder attached to it may not play as well. That makes sense. I think a film, I, I, I look at this from almost like a movie making standpoint and a marketing standpoint. Yeah. And, um, I don't think a film like this would succeed Mm. today and it kind of goes back to the idea of me saying that for the first 30 minutes of this film you you don't know where it's going and how do you tell people it's a sci-fi film do you tell people it's a comedy you know like that's a difficult thing people like to categorize film more yeah these days uh and at the same time i feel like the great thing about this movie is the lack of special effects. Uh, I think that when they do, like some stuff is cheesy, right? Like the, he holds his hand in front of his face and like, it's like, you know, it's just like, uh, this this is cringy. (laughs) Uh, But like the amount of special effects that they would probably want to feed into this film naturally Mm -hmm. to, for the, for the time travel elements uh, seems overwhelming. I really like the fact that they built the DeLorean out that like when you looked inside of that DeLorean, they had made it that way. Yeah. And it seemed, you know, tangible. Uh, I really liked the fact that when the car takes off, it leaves the fire trails. When it yeah. comes back, it has the frost. And there's not like this weird, you know, like vortex that it has to go through or anything. Right. Like that we just, it just happened. You don't need to see it. Uh, I think that those kinds of things would be disruptive to the rest of the story. Yeah. Uh, the real story in it. I just don't think this film would be su- as successful. I don't think a remake would be as successful. Right. Uh, just, yeah, no, yeah, no, it can't happen. I agree. I don't think, I don't think it's possible to make it. If you were going to try and make it, I feel like you'd have to do a throwback, but we interpret the eighties today differently than the eighties interpreted the eighties at the time. So it's, so even if you do a throwback, it's not going to be interpreted correctly. Right. Right. We're going to look at things today and we're going to like, this happened to stranger things. Like a bunch of people complained about it being, you know, too many, like there was a lot of, there was a lot of different complaints, right? Like there probably wasn't enough female representation. There wasn't enough people of color in it. Right. Like all of these things. And I think that they adjusted that in season two and like kind of made amends for some of that stuff. But, I think we'd have to ask ourselves too, like, well, what was the eighties actually like in that, like in that, what was that decade actually like? And what was bad and good about that? Like there were some things that were good, but there were some things that were just bad about every decade, pick your thing. Cause it's going to be some bad yeah. and there's going to be some good. And I just don't think, I don't think it would feel real or true if you told the same story in the same way today. Yeah. I do think that you could make, so I, I picture like, have you guys seen safety not guaranteed? I think oh, no. so. It's uh, Aubrey Plaza and yes. um, some other dude. I think it's like a, it's one of the Star Wars directors who may it's have been Colin fired. Colin Trevorrow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Trevorrow. Um, I think that that's today's version of this film. 
but it's way different. It's skeptical, right? Like, like we just talked about the Doc Marty relationship and went, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, that is weird, right? Yeah. Like, that is strange. But in the 80s, that wasn't as big of a deal. Like, it, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, now you look at it and, like, like, the whole safety not guaranteed thing is, like, this girl who's taking a risk with this guy who she thinks may be a weirdo. Yeah. Right? Like, and I don't, she's like, I don't know if he's a weirdo, but she takes it, she's cautious. You don't see any caution between Doc and Marty. It's all adventure. You know, right. it's like, oh, this is fun. I guess this is cool. Like, yeah, Doc, I'll videotape this. Like, crazy, like Libyans. Like, which, by the way, I doubt are portrayed by Lebanese people. Like, <laughs> no, or, yeah. or Libyans, I should say. <laughs> Libyans, I'm getting it even probably wrong. Um, but I'm pretty sure that's not the case. Um, so we just have a different context, and there's no way that we could bring our context. But if we were trying to, if we tried to bring the 80s context, everybody would be like, no, that's not it. Well, but even if you throw the whole 80s thing out and just try and make a movie that's as well-rounded as this today, you don't see that. Like you said, Josh, there's just so much attempt to categorize things and to pick a genre. Yeah. But in the 80s, we had a lot of movies like this. Yeah. Like there's a Raiders of the Lost Ark poster right here. Right. Right. It was like that. Right. You had suspense, action, adventure, comedy, horror, like all in one movie. I think that that also goes with... uh, the, actually with Indiana Jones with the changing of the rating system yeah. in, in the 80s mm. is, is that once we changed the rating systems and everything wasn't either G or PG really you know because like even if you look at old universal horror like you could take kids to go see Dracula come on like it's not yeah. that scary but you would never take a kid to go see Saw that would be <laughs> <Right>. freaky <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. like, yeah. uh, unless you're a sociopath <laughs> but like I think that like that's what almost killed it. And the fact that like family movies were up until the mid eighties, a family yeah. affair. Yeah. And then once you took that away and you started pulling towards the PG 13, the R rating, you started to kind of categorize things as what's family, then what's not family. Then, you know, what genre, like, okay, it's an R rated film. That's a horror film. Mm-hmm. Now I know what I'm going to go see. Uh, yeah, I mean that yeah. that totally kills the vibe of being like, it's an adventure film. Yeah. What's it about? Who cares? Right. And right, I wonder right. if we're going to see that come back because in a lot of ways it feels like the 80s was a reaction to the 70s, right? Yes. Which was very dark and edgy and lots of boundary pushing and stuff like that. The, the part I don't know if you can recover from, though, is that these films were fairly homogenous. And what I mean by that, it was like, like you're saying, like culturally, it was like, we'll just create this film. It doesn't matter if like there are stereotypical uh, characters. Today, everything's a niche. Everything's built for a subculture. Um, And so I think it's really difficult to build broad films. Now, I do think The Force Awakens handled it. Like Force Awakens, I think, is a broad film. But that's very difficult to do without a bunch of people going, this sucks because it represents this character in this way and that way. We just kind of glossed over that in the 80s. And nobody really, the people making the films didn't consider that as a big issue. Yeah, I'm not saying they shouldn't have, but they didn't think of it to a certain degree. I, I do think, though, that we are seeing when you're talking about a resurgence or you know, a change of back. I think we saw that, especially in the 2000s, with the PG-13 format, and you still exist. Um, I mean, like Pirates of the Caribbean, I would consider that a family, yeah, ad- you know, adventure mm-hmm. where it has comedy elements, it has a romance, it has all those things. 
uh, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy is that in a lot of ways. And we are seeing, again, I think now, now that we're out of the 2000s uh, and, you know, deep into the 20-teens, we're now seeing that pull even further. Like, okay, the subgenre of superhero films has been around for a while. Now how do we genrefy that? Yeah. And then you've got the Deadpool, you know, Logan stuff where it's like, well, now you can't show kids this. Yep. And so we're just continuing to, like, as we try and bond it all back together, it yeah. just gets even more segregated. Exactly. So, and even all that stuff points to the whole idea of only making movies based on these existing properties that we know people like. And, and the same, you know, could could Star Wars, The Force Awakens, or The Last Jedi, either one, could those films even exist in the in the format that they're being told? Right if the original series yeah. had not told them that way. Exactly. Yeah. Would they be more Star Trek sci-fi yeah. right, than more family Or more adventure? like Matrix-y. Or, yeah. They would, you know, yeah. Because we tend to see sci-fi as much more hard sci-fi now yep. than this kind of fun, like, 88 miles an hour, you can go whatever, whenever you want. <laughs> yeah. Just, that'll be fine. Yeah. And, th- and I think that, to your point about the internet, is now it's like... I said this about when I was I guested on uh, the Story Cauldron podcast and talked about the Indiana Jones films, all three of them, the whole trilogy, which is well, there's four of them, <laughs> but the three of them that matter. Um, the uh, and and the fact that like it, the world felt big enough when those films came out that there was like, yeah, maybe there is like some kind of like special thing off in the middle of nowhere. Nowadays, like, I said this on their podcast, like. Yep, there's YouTube. I expect someone to have YouTubed the area of the world that I'd have never seen before. Yeah. Right. I expect there to be like an actual YouTuber who's like, here's what it looks like in wherever today. You know what I mean? And then that just shrinks down. Our suspension of disbelief is almost impossible now. Yeah. So I totally agree. Like, I, so we just hope now that nobody tries to remake this film. Do you think that there could be a sequel? Well, obviously, there's two and three, but yeah. could there been a fourth film yeah could there be a fourth film now well i that's what i'm nervous about i think that's one of the reasons why crystal skull didn't work because it was released too late in the time frame well i think also the reason why crystal skull didn't work was because you tried to keep it within the indiana jones you know indiana jones is harrison ford yeah and it was too late for him the route that you should have gone would have been what you did before which is the young indiana jones change Ooh. up the whole paradigm change yeah. up the whole and that's uh, to me if you were to do another back to the future you would have to go correct a- and and visit like an older marty yep. or a young doc or something like that exactly you would have to totally rebrand and i think it, you'd have it. to make fun of some of the tropes you played with in the in the earlier beginning yeah like you'd have to you'd have to have a joke where it's like hey doc why 88 miles an hour it's like that's just what it is, Marty. You know, like yeah. you, you yeah. have to get there somehow, because otherwise the audience is like, "Yeah, that was." You don't want the audience to go, "Yeah, that was dumb." Right. You have to just play along with the joke. And in some ways, I think like Rick and Morty will, will be is a fantastic uh, kind yeah. of follow up to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we don't really we don't need the sequel. I definitely don't care to see an awful sequel to, yeah. Back <laughs> to the Future. Like exactly. Like I know it would be awful. Rick yeah. and Morty's fine. Yeah. I think for me, this is one. This is one world where I just don't want any more of it. Not because I don't want to see that again, but because 
A, I don't want this story to be told without Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd. Which they clearly couldn't. They can't. Yeah, not now. Um, And I also, I like where it ended. I like Doc got his family, you know, and at, at the end of the third one. And Marty got to kind of write everything in his life and save Doc. And everything ends well. Like, they end where they want to be. And for me, I'm like, I just... I don't want to ruin that and bring in more story unless it's really, really good. I mean, <laughs> have you guys seen the, uh, there was a Jimmy Kimmel where he brought yeah. them back. You see that? Yeah. So I should put the link in the, in the show notes or something, but that that's a pretty clever sketch. Yeah. It was, but yeah. even that was kind of awkward because at that point, Michael J. Fox was, you know, pretty progressed with Parkinson's and stuff sure. like that. And it's just, he's just unable to do the same. It's difficult to see Michael J. Fox in the condition he's in. Yeah. Because he was, like we were saying before, he was just such a cool guy. I know. Guy. Yeah. You can't not love him. Well, and also also the embodiment of youth in the 80s because of all the other films he did in the 80s yeah, as well. Right. And so he had this, there was this sense of like, I think in the 80s there was a sense of we will we will find invincibility and immortality you know like it just felt like that yeah and when you see him not looking youthful because he looked youthful for a really long time yeah and then when you see him not in that you're like oh like it wasn't true like yeah yeah we we didn't find those things you know and another big part of it too we didn't even talk about this but he was on family ties as when back to the future came out oh yeah so like and i watched that show i did too so it's like we already had Michael J. Fox in our lives as kind of our day-to-day picture of life, you yeah. know? Yeah, talk about an 80s show, man. But my favorite thing that I've actually seen today as a throwback to Back to the Future, that uh-huh. sketch on Kimmel was good, but and this is on YouTube. You can go find this. But um, Michael J. Fox, I don't know why this happened. I didn't research it, but he appeared on stage with Coldplay. And really? And they played Johnny Be Good, and they gave him a guitar. And even this was recent; like this wasn't more than maybe a few years ago. And he still cranked out a guitar solo on stage wow. with Coldplay, playing yeah, John, kind of playing Johnny Be Good. See. Yeah, yeah, it's kind and of it's cool. awesome. Cool throwbacks. It's really cool. I will say that that was one bummer about this film is what that I know that Michael J. Fox is probably not good enough of a singer to not be overdubbed for that singing. Oh that yeah. Song. I kind of wish they would have just let him sing that song. It's but he was a guitar player. Oh, you can I don't tell. Know. I, don't, yeah. I don't know that he really played what's on. Well, there's I mean, the one well, shot where he's, it's on him doing it, and then it just pans right up. Yeah. As a guitar player, I know that it's not perfect. It doesn't quite line up. But you're right. He's at least doing the right kinds of motions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. All right. Any final thoughts, guys? We'll close out this podcast. Such a great movie. Yeah. I just I love it. It is a great film. Fantastic. I mean, I watched it this week yeah. in preparation for the show, and I just want to watch it again now. I know. <laughs> like, like it's a film that is something you can sit down and watch all the time. No question. Yeah. And it's so fun. I'm sitting there. My wife was in the other room, and I was watching it. I'm sitting there laughing, and she's, like, laughing at me from the other room. I'm like, this is just so good. You know? Like, <laughs> yeah. And the way that they even film, like, this is just this is just a small segment of how good it is. The opening sequence when you're looking at all the clocks and then you start to realize that there's something wrong in the room because things are happening that like 
clearly like someone is neglecting the fact yeah. that, the, that the machines aren't working quite right. And then it shifts, and then Marty comes, and then his 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 skateboard runs into the plutonium yeah, box. Yeah. And with just, the TV that's been announcing it. Yeah, yeah and it just and it just said that they're missing plutonium, and and you're just like, it's just so again foreshadowing. Yeah, all that in just that thirty second sequence or minute sequence or whatever it is, it's just great. So go watch. Go watch Back to the Future if you're not encouraged to watch it now. I don't know what more will encourage you to do that. And even, just real quick, the amp, the guitar amp in that scene. So when I was a kid, I didn't think anything of it. Yeah. Nowadays, when I watch that, and I watch him go in there and turn every single one of those dials all the way up to the top, I'm like, it's literally suspenseful to me. I'm like, (laughs) that's a bomb. Like, you can't do that on any guitar amp. You can't turn everything all the way up. You're just going to destroy it. But that's what a 16-year-old kid would want to do. I know, I know. And that guitar is so sweet. Can we just clarify how cool 80s guitars were? Oh, there's the one dated thing in the movie right there. Oh, yeah. That tiny little guitar. Yeah, that tiny little guitar. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think later in there, it's like, uh, because, I mean, like, you know, they use Huey Lewis in the news. Yeah. in In the film. But and like that's his band. But I think like the Dire Straits like headless guitar. Uh huh. I think is in there somewhere too. I don't remember really? where it is. Yeah, but like cool. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. So Josh, why don't you tell people where to find you? Uh, you can find me over at network nineteen oh one dot com along with everybody else that's uh, over there. The four of us that do videos. Uh, so it's youtube dot com slash network nineteen oh one as well for the videos, and then all of our podcasts are at network nineteen oh one. Excellent. And then you got Modern Mouse. Modern Mouse Radio I host every Wednesday, which is at the website. Uh, And then we've got a bunch of different serials. I've hosted The World That Never Was. Uh, I hosted Animated Devils. And I've now hosted Disney Decade. Awesome. And if you're a Disney fan, go buy a product at Modern Mouse Critique. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Ears (laughs) or hats? Ears or hats. All right. Get these hats just like we got. That is it for today's podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. And if you have an extra minute, write us a review or share this episode with one of your geek friends. All right, fellow geeks. As always, question everything in your favorite stories and always seek the truth. We'll catch you on the next podcast.